This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary, and we are working our way through the Nicene Creed. This is going to be a multi-part series taking the creed kind of a piece at a time, a topic at a time to work through. And my guest today, our expert, is Doug Blunt, who is at Southern Seminary. And Doug, what uh, you know, I actually don't know the answer to this question. Uh, what's your official title there at Southern? Well, my official title is Professor of Christian Apologetics, and I'm also chairing the uh, Department of Apologetics and World Religions. Oh, okay. Well, that that's very interesting. I may have to come back to you on the when we do the World Religions stuff. Um, uh, so um, and, and so we've asked Doug to to discuss the Nicene Creed in the opening part of the Creed, which reads as follows. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. It's not a very long sentence, but it's saying a lot. So let's let's first talk about the Nicene Creed in general and your take on the role of this creed in the history of the church and the significance of this creed. Tell us a little bit about the Nicene Creed as you see it. Well, uh, first of all, I think it's important to note, as with all of the uh, Church's early creedal statements, that the Church didn't see herself at Nicaea as creating doctrine, right? Uh, What's going on with the Council is, uh, because of various issues that have arisen, uh, the Fathers are interested in articulating what they understand to have been the teaching of Christ and the Apostles. And so the Creed of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, as well as uh, the other early confessional statements, give us a window into the early Church's understanding of the apostolic teaching. And while the creedal statements are certainly not uh, not inspired, uh, certainly not in the technical sense in which Scripture is, they're therefore um, less authoritative, they're not infallible, they're not inerrant, they are nonetheless um, faithful articulations on the part of the Church of their understanding of of the doctrine of the Apostles that they received from Christ. And consequently, the the Nicene Creed, as well as the other early confessional statements of the Church, deserve deserve great respect. So how do we uh, think through what the actual setting is for the Creed? Um, I I take it that the backdrop is... uh, um, we're in the midst of, the, of sorting out kind of how to articulate the Trinity in a in a concise way that everybody gets. And how was the creed used? I guess I got two questions there. So the backdrop to the creed, and then how was the creed actually designed to function? Well, first of all, I take it the backdrop um, involves um, 
claims that uh, Christ is either less than fully human or less than fully divine, so that what the creed is particularly interested in doing is affirming um, both his humanity and especially his divinity, right? And so the language of the creed is intended to make it clear that Christ is, um, you know, one substance of one substance with the Father, that, in other words, he is very God of very God. Um, so presumably what's going on is the Church is encountering opposition. Um, you know, false teachers are claiming that Christ is less than fully divine. Um, the Creed is intended to serve as, um, as a corrective on that false teaching. Uh, it's intended to, uh, to make clear what the parameters for our understanding of the nature of Christ are with respect to divinity. Okay. So it's primarily Christologically and Trinitarianly focused, would that be fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is. Okay. And the function of the creed, you produce the creed to help um, help the churches, help people in the churches understand this doctrine and to serve as a potential correction for teaching that they might be getting that doesn't match uh, the standards of orthodoxy. Yeah, I, I think that's correct, yeah. And of course, the, uh, the emphasis on Nicaea is on Trinity, particular on the, particularly on the divinity of the Son. The Chalcedonian definition will later come along and stress, in addition to the divinity of Christ, also the humanity of Christ. Interesting. Um, but yeah, absolutely, these, uh, these creedal statements provide the parameters for um, how the early Church understands God, uh, in this case, particularly the, the, the Father and the Son, um, and, uh, and consequently are intended as, um, as teaching devices. Okay. And, and I like to point out to people that, uh, you know, you're dealing in a time in which people aren't walking around with books. <laughs> they certainly don't have paperbacks they're putting in their back pockets. <laughs> uh, they don't have digital devices that they're functioning with. Um, and so these are creeds that I take it would have been uh, – uh, circulated orally and read in the services and that kind of thing? How would they actually have functioned on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of how they would have been utilized and people would have been aware of their contents? Yeah, I think uh, certainly they would have been used liturgically in worship. Um, and of course, uh, your, your point is, uh, is exactly correct. Um, the knowledge most people would have of the creed would come by way of public recitation, mm -hmm. by way of public confession, which of course would take place primarily in worship. Um, but um, yeah, these would be heard orally and committed to memory. Um, of course, in in the cultural context, uh, because um, you know paper is uh, is a more precious commodity. Uh, writing is uh, is not ne nearly as easy, um, uh, you know, to, to come by as it is today. Uh, the the oral nature of the culture would have predisposed people uh, to be far more uh, reliant upon memory than we are. Um, and I suspect the fact that we are more of a written culture, a visual culture, than an oral culture means that. Uh, we probably have lost something of that ability to commit things to memory. 
Yes, I, I think that's a very common uh, difference between the ancient period and our own. It's something that usually people don't spend much time thinking about because they just, you know, they're used to uh, processing information the way they're used to processing information, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's let's take a look at this statement, and we're, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the statement and elaborate on it. And I think that one of the things that's, that's interesting here is that the brevity with which the Father is covered, which is kind of our focus in this part one, is a reflection of the fact that the issue of the Father wasn't the issue that the issue of the Son and the Spirit were. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, in fact... Uh, the early church would, of course, inherited a, uh, a particular understanding of God and the oneness of God from its Jewish background, mm-hmm. um, would have inherited that from Judaism. And so the basic point that there is one and only one God with which the, uh, the Nicene Creed begins is one that would have not been disputed. It would have been received from the earlier Jewish tradition, certainly. Um, so there's much less uh, that the church felt uh, apparently necessary to say explicitly about the Father. Um, although it, it is certainly not irrelevant that she affirms that he is almighty. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the term we would typically use is omnipotent. Uh, and in connection with his omnipotence, he's the maker of all things. Yeah, in fact, it's it's the role of creator that is distinctive about what what becomes the conversation in relationship to Jesus in part, and that is he's on the creator side of the creator-creature divide, which puts absolutely. him in the category of deity. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, as you well know, Daryl, the, the New Testament texts that stress the divinity of Christ, and the ones I have in mind most obviously are John 1, uh, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, Right, all of these texts that speak of the divinity of Christ also identify him as the creative agent of the Father, right? The word by whom the Father creates. So that the connection between the fact that he is the creative agent of God and the fact that he is indeed divine is is very strong in the New Testament text. Yeah, in fact, it's it's one of the key ways that we get an identification with with the divine work of Jesus. The other way, of course, that the New Testament does this is by having Jesus perform various actions that are reflective of divine power. Uh, Absolutely, things like yeah. forgiveness of sins, the calming of the uh, the calming of the storm, which shows his control over creation. Those kinds of things that point to really his his hand in in authority uh, in the in the affairs of the world. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, for instance, uh, you know, at the end of uh, of John chapter eight, I believe it is uh, Jesus. Um, upsets, to put it mildly, the Jewish leadership by, uh, by claiming to be God, right, when he says, uh, I am. And in John 9, we pick up with the miracle where Jesus heals uh, the man born blind. And the way he heals him is particularly interesting, right, because he, he spits in the dirt, makes up a paste, puts it on the eyes, and tells the man to go wash. Well, I take it that miracle is placed by John in his account right after the interaction with the Jewish leadership. 
because it emphasizes the fact that Jesus is indeed Yahweh. Yahweh created man out of the dust of the earth. Mm-hmm. And so when Jesus heals this man born blind, he recreates his eyes, so to speak, out of the dust of the earth. Um, you know, I take it that's um, a clear indication that he is doing the very things that are indicative of Yahweh. Yes. So uh, it's interesting because I'm thinking about this creed, uh, and I want to. I will want to come to this eventually. If, if if this creed were being written today, probably with the background of Islam in place, we might get a little more expansive declaration about who God is and the covenant nature of His engagement with humanity. Uh, because here the stress is simply on the oneness of God. Uh, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Uh, We get the stress on his power and his role of creator, but what makes Christianity distinct, at least to some degree, from Islam is where Islam stresses this sovereignty and power of God, uh, Christianity has this covenant-making aspect, this relational aspect of God that makes it somewhat distinct from Islam in emphasis. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think, um, obviously enough, the, the introductory statement about God, as you point out, doesn't distinguish the Christian understanding of God from either the Muslim or the Jewish understanding. Because Islam right? doesn't <laughs> exist yet. <laughs> well, absolutely. Yeah. Right? So it wouldn't be intended to, of course. But, I mean, my point is, you know, today, um, a Muslim could certainly could certainly stand in agreement with, uh, as could, of course, uh, a Jew, with uh, with that opening statement. Yeah, so the controversy in the creed really comes later in many right. ways. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Yeah. Absolutely. So let, let's talk a little bit about, about this emphasis on, on God as creator, and, we, and you've already alluded to, uh, actually it was a passage that I, that I taught on this morning, um, Colossians 1, which which talks about Jesus being the image of the invisible God, and interestingly enough, almost mirrors um, the last phrase of this creed, of all things visible and invisible, in which, as you made the point earlier, Jesus is the agent through whom God does the creating. So let's let's talk a little bit about that relationship, because this is building a bridge, if you will, towards the larger confession of the creed, where the Son is brought in, and he is, uh, and he is associated with uh, the creation as well. In the line it says, uh, in the second portion, dealing with the Son, through him all things were made. The mm-hmm. part that I see echoing what's said of Jesus, interestingly enough, in Colossians 1, is of all things visible and invisible, which you get in the Colossians 1 passage as a description of Jesus, so let's talk a little bit because this does set up thinking about the Trinity in this context. Um, let's set up the relationship between the Father and the Son in 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 association with the creation. Well, of course, uh, Genesis teaches us uh, very clearly uh, in the early chapters that God creates by speech, by His Word. He speaks all things into being, and uh, and of course, we learn in uh, John, uh, first chapter of John, that that word by whom the Father creates is none other than Christ. Um, so again, Christ is the creative agent of the Father, um, 
who who brings all things into being and uh, and holds all things into being, as Paul also uh, makes clear. Um, the uh, emphasis on maker of all things visible and invisible, I take it, uh, is an emphasis on the fact that God exists a se, that all things, right, apart from God himself, all things depend upon him, though he depends upon nothing. Um, and when I say God exists a se, or when I refer to the doctrine of aseity, this is the doctrine that Christians have historically affirmed, according to which God is uh, is utterly independent of his creation, right? He depends on nothing, though everything distinct from him depends upon him. So, uh, so that, that would be, um, I take it at least part of what's implied and intended by, by the phrase about maker of all things, visible and invisible. Now, this has, this has another implication that I think is pretty important. And again, I'm, I'm getting us to think about a world in which uh, the, uh, we're coming out of the edges of the Greco-Roman world in which idolatry is a very important reality for a lot of people. They live in the midst of cities where, um, where a whole array of gods are being worshipped, and there's, of course, without a, within Judaism the belief of, uh, of, of a spirit world that's been inherited into Christianity as well. So you've got those two things going on, so that your contrast here is that God is over any and all of that, that there is no, there is no spiritual reality uh, outside, uh, outside of the reach and awareness of God. Yeah, absolutely. So that uh, all other um, beings, uh, you know, whether we're talking about things in the physical world that are tangible, that are visible, or we're talking um, about things uh, in the spiritual realm, right? Angels, for instance, right? That all things owe their existence to God. And it's not just that they owe their existence to God insofar as he is their original creator, Though, though that's true. But, of course, that all things exist because God continues to hold them in being, um, so that God not only creates everything initially, but everything continues to be only at the divine pleasure and by the divine will. So we've got this create God is creator, but he's also sustainer of that creation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and that's a point, you know, that we often don't talk about in church these days. That's right. Uh, I, I think a lot of lay folk are, uh, without even realizing it, um, in a certain respect, deistic in their understanding of God and his relationship to creation, right? Uh, it, it's not enough for a properly Christian view of God's creative activity to simply say that, well, he's the one who got everything started to begin with. Uh, as you say, he sustains all things in being. Um, and of course, when we think about Christ being the creative agent of God by whom all things are created and sustained, uh, it's a mind-boggling concept. I mean, you know, we just recently celebrated Easter, and, uh, and I can't help but reflect that even as Jesus is being scourged by the Roman soldiers, it is he, as the Word of God, who holds them and sustains them in being. Um, it's a remarkable truth. It's hard to wrap our minds around, but it's an extraordinarily important truth. 
Yeah, and I, I've sensed the same thing. Oh, you know, I was in a discussion yesterday with someone in which the question came up: What was, uh, uh, what was, uh, what does it mean to be in heaven? And they're thinking about the idea of rest, and the, and they were describing it in such a way that they almost thought of it as a com- a state of complete passivity. And I'm sitting here mm-hmm. responding and saying, well, you got to remember, yes, God did create across the picture of six days, but the, the idea of resting is, doesn't mean that he's completely passive because he's still sustaining the creation that he has created. And so there's activity even in the midst of the rest. Yeah, absolutely. So that the divine power is always at work, so and, to speak. It is always active. Yeah. So I, I, I think that as we uh, kind of turn our attention to the role of how the creed functions and, and we turn our attention, begin to turn our attention to the idea of I've got this confession of one God, the Father Almighty, at the top, one might think that the confession of one God, the Father Almighty, it is being distinguished from one Lord Jesus Christ coming on a little further down and the only Son of God, and yet... The confession, we believe in one God, actually covers the entirety of the creed. Am I reading that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So it would be a mistake to think that when the creed says we believe in one God and then says the Father Almighty, that it means only the Father Almighty. Of course, the and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is uh, is also covered by that one God in whom we believe. I, I think, Daryl, you're exactly correct about that. And the line that says God from God uh, further on under Jesus and true God from true God is designed to underscore that, that very point that we're talking about. That very first line covers everybody, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and you're right, I think, exactly about, uh, about um, you know, God of God, very God of very God, and of course, the language of begotten. Um, the creed is, is quite um, emphatic, as will the Chalcedonian defini- definition be later, that, uh, that Christ is not a creature, right? He, he is not a created being. So as you put it earlier in our conversation, uh, the Son is clearly on the creator side of the creature, uh, creator divide. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. Let me also uh, make the point uh, that the Spirit is is also described in ways that point to his deity later on in the creed when it says um, he's the giver of, he is the giver of life that points to a divine activity uh, he proceeds from the father and the son so he's connected to them in a significant and intimate way and uh, he's worshiped and glorified which is something in the context of monotheism is something you would only do for a deity so the so the spirit is wrapped up into this oneness of god as well 
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's talk about how this works. I think that for most Christians, <laughs> not to mention uh, people in general, the idea of the Trinity I- itself is a challenging um, concept. Um, the idea of three in one uh, and the idea that there is one God, but we talk about three persons, and there's uh, you have a philosophical background, so you're going to be able to help us kind of sort this out, and I'm sure we'll just be full of clarity on the other end. Uh, so, so help us sort through um, the idea of the three-in-one and how that works. You know, uh, Christians get accused of being polytheists, um, and it's clear that at least the attempt of the wording of the confession is designed to prevent that from being the conclusion that one makes. So how do we get there? Well, first of all, um, uh, it, it's important to note, and uh, and I'll try to bring some clarity, though there's certainly going to be some mystery attached to this, however clear we're able to get. But, but that being said, um, it's important to note that the sense in which God is one and the sense in which he is three are different. We're not claiming that there is one God and, oh, also there are three gods. Obviously, that would be contradictory. Nor are we claiming that there's precisely one divine person, but there are also three divine persons, right? That would also, of course, be contradictory. But rather that there is one God, and this one God is three persons. So there are three, di- three divine persons who are God, right? That, that's the claim. Now, as far as the biblical basis for this, um, right, the, uh, uh, the early church follows Jesus— uh, in affirming that there is one and only one God. Um, but she also recognizes not only that the Father is God, but that the Son is God and claims so to be, and that the Spirit is also affirmed as divine, uh, both by Jesus and by the apostles, right? So, so there's one God, and yet the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Now, so far, you don't quite have the doctrine of Trinity, but when you add to that the fact that the Father is neither the Son nor the Spirit, the Son is neither the Father nor the Spirit, and of course the Spirit is neither the, um, the Father nor the Son, when you put all of that together, you have the doctrine, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the claim is there's one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, um, and all of these persons, each of the three persons is fully divine, so that each of them possesses all of the attributes that are essential to divinity. So it's not just the Father who is omnipotent, because he is fully divine, so also the Son is omnipotent. And of course, because the Spirit also is fully divine, so also he is omnipotent. And as it goes with omnipotence here, so it goes with the other divine attributes. Now, I've probably taken off a little bit uh, on a tangent from your question, Daryl, so reel me back in if you would like to. Well, uh, no, that gets us at least started, because I think that what people find um, hard to understand is, is is this distinction and unity at the same time. Um, And, uh, you know, people posit all kinds of analogies for the Trinity. I've, I've seen the, a shamrock ap- appeal to uh, – um, some people have tried to say, well, it's a little bit like um, – what is it? 
uh, ice, uh, water, and, yeah. and, and, yeah. and mist, uh, think of it that way. But none of those quite exactly work, do they? No, in fact, the truth of the matter is the analogies that people will typically put on the table, actually, if you think about them carefully, are more suggestive of what the church would recognize to be a heretical understanding, right? I mean, we, we believe there's one God, not three, so we're not tritheist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but we believe this one God is three persons, so we're also not what uh, what would be called modalist, right? We don't think that there's only one divine person who sometimes appears in the mode of the Father, sometimes in the mode of the Son, and sometimes in the mode of and the And that's Spirit. the problem with the H2O illustration. Absolutely. Yeah. It, absolutely. That's right. With the H2O example, what you've got is one substance that appears in different modes. And so that lends itself to a modalistic understanding. The truth of the matter is there is no um, analogy in nature that will help us make sense of the, of the Trinity. Uh, God is unique, and his triune nature is certainly an important aspect of that unique. Yeah, I, I've tried to take a shot at this by saying if we can modify nature a little bit, and if you want to go with the H2O illustration, think about it being simultaneously solid, water, and mist, and, and, and you know, and, and all three of those inter- interpenetratively, you know, interacting. That's about as close as you can get to a non Yeah, I, I think that's right. But, but of course, as, as soon as you start thinking about that issue of interpenetration, as you say, yeah. right, then, then it becomes mysterious. Exactly. Right? So we end up understanding the mystery of the triunity of God uh, in light of this other mystery. Right. Um, yeah. Sometimes I'll have uh, students ask me, you know, what do you say to children? How do you help children understand this doctrine of, of the Trinity? And Daryl, my response is, um, well, whatever I do, I don't give them analogies that are going to lead them down a false path. So when my daughter was young, um, what I told her was this. There is one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And when she said to me, Daddy, I don't understand, my response was, Honey, I don't either. But we know this to be true because it's the teaching of Christ and the apostles. The scriptures make uh, uh, the various claims that lead us to this doctrine quite clearly. And this leads us into a discussion that I think is worth having at this point, and that is the value of affirming... uh, the mystery of God, and I like to put it in the context of thinking through the vastness of God, that God is so vast, so immense, the concept is so (laughs) comprehensive, if you will, that to think that we're able to penetrate it and talk about it actually um, underestimates uh, the character that we're describing. Yeah, I I think that's correct. I I mean, if if God, if our conception of God was such that we could wrap our minds around it in full, uh, it would almost certainly be a mark that this was a man-made conception rather than the truth. Um, we ought to expect, insofar as we are finite and God is not, we ought to expect what we find, which is certainly the fact that he is beyond our ability to comprehend. And that doesn't mean we can't understand anything at all about him, right? 
But what we understand is what he has made known to us by way of revelation. And, uh, and there are limits to what we can understand, right? So we can't fully understand, right? And of course, the church historically has affirmed divine incomprehensibility. Um, that, that doctrine is just about this point, right? That, that we can understand God in part insofar as he has revealed himself to us, but not in full. Yes. And, 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 I, and I think that at one, on one hand, it, it, this aspect disturbs people, but it also, on the other hand, I think is an opportunity to comfort people, uh, to recognize that God is so vast and so large that to think that we could, you know, package him, <laughs> there, if I can play with an analogy in Scripture, there's no building that can hold this God. Um, you know, he's, he's bigger than that. He's vaster than that. The vaster is a word. So uh, more vast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the, uh, the truth is um, we have to approach God um, in, in humility. And, and recognize that, uh, you know, he has uh, condescended to make himself known to us. And, uh, and insofar as he has done that, and by the work of his Spirit helps us to understand what he has made known, uh, you know, w- we, can, we can know him in part. But, uh, but it's hubris for us to think that, uh, that we can understand him in full. Now, I want to come back to to one of the things that makes Christianity, I think, so distinctive in the way in the way the Trinity operates, and it's back to this idea of thinking about our confession of God vis-a-vis, say, uh, a monotheistic faith like Islam, in which uh, in which we do have the picture of an all-powerful and sovereign God. That's the picture of of the Islamic God, and and yet it strikes me in thinking about the creed, and particularly the creed as a whole now, the fact that we are talking about one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, that actually has a relational dimension in the confession that is distinctive from Islam. Fair? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, God is a community. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we we certainly don't want to de-emphasize the unity of God, but uh, but he is a community of three persons. Um, and, uh, and and Daryl, another thing worth um, worth reflecting on is this. Jesus's understanding of himself cannot be made sense of apart from a recognition that God is a community of three persons. Because, of course, Jesus understands himself as the Son entirely in terms of submission to the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, in John 5, uh, he, he says, uh, you know, I do only what I see my Father doing. I can do nothing. The Son can do nothing on his own. Uh, and that theme plays, uh, plays out throughout the Gospel of John very explicitly. Uh, Christ understands himself in submission. I mean, this is, this is one reason why modalism is theologically disastrous. If there's just one divine person, it makes a mockery of Christ's submission. Because, of course, submission to yourself isn't submission. Right. Uh, so the relationality of the Father and the Son is absolutely critical to the ministry that Jesus has, uh, has uh, in, in, or that Christ has in the Incarnation. 
um, and, and is therefore really critical for the work of salvation. Yeah, and I think that uh, this is this is a um, it, it's an important difference. You know, uh, in the interactions that I've had with Muslims and talking about the character of God, we talk about His sovereignty and those kinds of ideas. You know, we really are on a on a similar plane of interaction, and and we can understand each other. But the moment you move towards the idea that that Jesus is divine or that divinity can be so related to humanity that divinity can take on humanity I'm, I don't know if I'm saying this carefully enough or not uh, th- that's that's the move a Muslim can't make that, that is very hard for them to understand and engage with they they see it as a demeaning of God to suggest that that deity can become incarnate and captured within humanity. Well, yeah, certainly they do. That being said, um, uh, of course, uh, we recognize that uh, that it is humility on the part of the Son. Um, you know, it, it's a humbling thing, and it's a sign of God's humility that uh, that the Son would become one of us. Um, certainly, uh, Paul emphasizes this quite quite strongly in writing to the Philippians. Um, you know, so certainly we want to grant that uh, that this is a humbling on God's part to become one of us. Um, and yet, at the same time, it is a sign of the love of the Father and the Son for those who were created to be God's children, but who alienated themselves from Him by way of their sin, right? That, uh, that God's love for fallen humanity was such that Christ was willing, the Son was willing, um, you know, to, to humble himself to such an extent. Um, and, and I guess this gets at one really critical distinction of the Christian understanding of God, and that is that God is essentially humble. Uh, we, we see this, of course, in the Old Testament as well as the New. Right, the God of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, is a God who exalts the humble, but humbles the proud. Uh, in fact, um, I don't think we evangelicals make enough of this point. Right, this point that God is essentially humble, and the Scriptures portray this as absolutely central to His character. Yeah, and in fact, the, the thing that strikes me about it is that it shows the depth to which. If I can say this, the re- the relational side of God is at work in in Scripture and in the portrait of who God is. That that this uh, this reaching out, if you will, to use the lang- you know the language of Philippians two talks about Jesus emptying himself in at, at least in some sense by taking on humanity, and in that that humbling, uh, if you will, we see his commitment to relate to us, not just at the level of his divinity, but actually to connect with us at the level of our humanity and go through, and this is the language, of course, of the book of Hebrews, to go through the experiences of humanity, yet doing so uh, without succumbing to sin in the process. Yeah, and insofar uh, or in so doing, he establishes a new humanity, right? He becomes the head of a new humanity, 
um, so that those of us who are part of the humanity uh, whose head was the first atom might, might become identified with him in the new humanity. Um, yeah, the, the, the son, by the will of the father, submits himself to the indignity of being one of us, that we might be made like him, uh, not in the fullness of divinity, of course, but in righteousness, uh, in holiness, etc. Yeah, I, I, I think that the answer to the Muslim sense that this is an insult on God actually is a reflection of his of his greatness and his commitment to his creation uh, to step into that creation in an intimate, direct kind of way and uh, and be a model and be a reflection of what he calls us to be at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's right. Um, you know, Adam and Eve were created to be the son and daughter of God, but by their sin alienated themselves. And so God in his wisdom, knowing beforehand, established a, uh, a path for those whom he would have as his children to be brought back into the family and adopted as sons and daughters. Um, it, it, I mean, frankly, uh, of course, my sensibilities are, are Christian sensibilities, but it strikes me that it gives us a beautiful picture of God. Um, it's not just true, though it is that, it's beautiful mm-hmm. as well. Um, and, uh, and you know, would that, uh, that uh, Muslims, uh, as well as other unbelievers, w- would come to see, you know, the truth and the goodness and the beauty of this. You know, uh, another implication yeah. that grows out of this, it seems to me, is thinking through the relationship of God as he interacts with us through through the Trinity, through the Father, through the Son, through the Spirit, um, with our being made in the image of God. I like to describe salvation as kind of God reclaiming all that the image of God that He has created within us can be, getting kind of getting us back to what that's supposed to be. And when you think about what God does as, as the Creator and as the Sustainer, here is someone who stewards the creation well who manages uh, the creation well. He designs it, he forms it, he sustains it, he interacts with it, he relates to it, etc. And it seems to me that, that there's an element of being made in the image of God, of having that ability that makes humans different from the rest of the creation uh, in, in significant ways, with, and, and also given the ability to relate to this God and to understand him, that makes... Uh, it, that's a part of what makes humanity unique, and we're designed for that relationship as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the uh, the stewarding aspect is appropriate for those who who have been made the children of God. Right? We are heirs along with Christ, uh, precisely because we're children. And uh, who better to entrust creation to? Than, uh, than the Creator's children, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, absolutely. I think, Daryl, the point about the restoration of the, uh, of the image of God, however precisely we articulate the point, um, is an extraordinarily important one. Um, 
you're probably uh, well aware of a, of a work published by Cornelius uh, Landinga several years ago called uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Mm-hmm. Right? God is in the business of restoring things to the way they are supposed to be, to the way they were originally intended to be. Yeah, and this reconnect, I actually think that at the core of salvation is this reconnecting us back to the image of God, the way it was designed to be, and to restore us to all that that was designed to be. And part of the story of reconciliation that comes in and through God's work on our behalf is the, is, is the job of rebuilding, in, in a sense, and, re, and recapturing that which has been lost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all things will be made new. Right, uh, and uh, and the Father will bring uh, all things back to to a state of uh, of uh, of newness. So, ab- absolutely, I think that's right. And that reconciliation involves things visible and invisible. It extends to the whole of the creation, as Romans eight tells us. Yeah. Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, Doug, I, I thank you for uh, taking the time to kind of um, roam through uh, the doctrine of the of the Trinity, and in particular to have us think through the relationship of the confession of one God to the idea that God is Father and that He is the Almighty and He is the Creator of things both visible and invisible, this opening part of this very important creed, and to help us reflect on some of the implications of that. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thank you, Daryl. My pleasure. And we hope that you've enjoyed this uh, time of reflection as well on our Creator God, and particularly the idea of God and Father, and hope that you'll join us in the rest of the series on the Nicene Creed, and we hope that you've enjoyed your visit to the table and that we Uh, can see you again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.